This is David Tarkington, pastor of First Baptist Church of Orange Park and the First Family Network. You are listening to the teaching ministry of our church. Thank you for downloading this sermon. If you have any questions about the church, go to firstfam.org or call us at 904-264-2351. should have Acts chapter 12 before you now. We have been going through chapter by chapter, story by story, Instance by instance and what's happening to the early church in Acts. And this is a story here, a narrative that includes quite a few biblical characters that you'd be familiar with. Uh, And so let's just look right into this. We're going to read the first, well, I'm going to read chapter 12, verses 1 through uh, 24. I know that leaves one verse hanging, but we'll catch that one next week. So 1 through 24, Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. And a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along the street, and immediately the angel left them, or left him, Peter, When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent an angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked on the door of the gateway, gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind, but she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Now, the James that's referenced there is not the one that was killed earlier, so that's another James. You've got John, who's John Mark, which is a different Mark than the John that is mentioned earlier. Everybody following along? And it's the house of Mary, but not that Mary. So here we go. So this is James, the brother of Jesus. Tell that to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now, there's this little postscript story I want to go ahead and add here, verses 20 through 24. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put, out, put on his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne, 
and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. I thought that would let that one sink in. But the word of the Lord increased and multiplied. You know, we like uh, rivalries as well, people. People have always liked rivalries. A good rivalry is something that people kind of get excited about. Uh, most everybody has an opinion on one or the other when they come up. And so there are all types of heated rivalries, whether that's uh, Florida and Georgia, or Florida and Florida State, or Florida and Tennessee, or Florida and anybody, apparently. Uh, and then there's, you know, Michigan and Ohio State, and you got the whole college football world. And then there's the big one like, you know, North Texas and SMU. All right, at least it's somewhat of a rivalry for three of us. But nevertheless, rivalries in sports. Then there's political rivalries. There's uh, the Democrats and the Republicans. And there's businesses like iPhone or Apple versus Android. And then there's religious ones like the Catholics versus the Lutherans. And then the ones that are really important like Chick-fil-A versus Popeye's. Rivalries are, are, are all over the place, and, and people like to take sides and figure out where they are on this and what's going on. And some rivalries are really unimportant. They're just fan-based arguments designed to keep them going every year and every year and have, a, have something to cheer for or someone to cheer against. Some of them are much more important. Some of them are actually life-or-death divisions, especially when it comes to right theology and biblical truth. And in this narrative of Acts chapter 12, you have a rivalry that is revealed it's not a new rivalry. It's not a battle that was heretofore never taking place. It was taking place here. It had took place prior. It's not really Herod versus the church. It's the enemy versus God. And it goes all the way back to prior, before the human story, before the Garden of Eden. But in the Garden of Eden, we see it come really to fruition here as the enemy takes his place to tempt the image bearers of God. The enemy brings a person of power in Acts chapter 12, as he has done throughout history, into a place of power, a person that he can use. In this case, it was someone who thought much more of himself than he ever should have. It was someone whose best trait was that he was the most prideful person in the room. He was one who sought to push down the growing church in this band of Christians. He attempted to eliminate the brethren by having them murdered and arrested. It's not a new strategy. It was taking place in Acts 12. It's taken place prior to that. It takes place in other countries today. For instance, in certain areas of the world where the underground church is thriving, the governments who are anti-church are doing their best to shut them down. We have dear friends of ours that live in the Far East and places where that is the case and where the church is being attacked by the, the government leaders. So what do they do? They come and tear down whatever buildings they may have. Then they look for those that would claim to be a part of that group and have them arrested. And if they get them all arrested or kid arrest, arrest most of them, then they try to find the leaders of those little groups of underground gatherings. And if possible, they kill them because that's how you get rid of the church. At least that's what they think. It's the same strategy today that was taking place back here in Acts chapter 12, and it's something that as we read through this, this is not just a narrative to read and to move on to the next story, but to think deeply about what God would have us understand today in this church, in the universal church, and in this local church of who we are at First Baptist Orange Park and how this impacts us. For this was, and it is, no game. This is real. The early church faced true persecution. We're starting to talk about persecution more and more nowadays, even in our own culture. 
We've yet to really face it. If you think because they shut down a church and won't let it meet, that's fully persecution. You haven't seen anything yet. We know it's happening even today. Today on this Sunday, there are churches that are a part of our team, part of our network, part of our denomination, part of our tribe, whatever you want to call it, who because of the state they are located, they're not allowed to gather like we are right now. Even socially distanced and with masks, they cannot. We know that in Kentucky today, it is legal for the casinos and the strip clubs and the abortion clinics to run as normal, but the churches cannot based on last week's ruling. We know this has taken place in other locations, in other states as well. Thank God many of our pastors are finding ways to proclaim the gospel regardless. They're not shutting down. You won't shut down the church in that way. But what is happening today and what we need to make, make sure we're understanding is this. As you read Acts 12, as you look at what's happening globally, it is forcing us to reevaluate the version of easy Christianity that the American church has marketed for decades. And is neither easy nor is it Christianity, but it sells well. And that's what many have bought. This easy Christianity that people buy into, meaning they will go to church and do Christian things when they have time, when it fits in their schedule, when they have a need, perhaps they're hungry or out of a job or they need some funding, or when they are fearful because they don't know what's going on in the world, or when nothing else comes up, like, you know, family events, ball games, me time, or whatever other self-indulgent society sales pitch is given to the church. As long as church fits our schedule. We changed our schedule back to 8 o'clock and 1045, and I know that some are frustrated because 915 worked better for them. We are a consumer congregation. All churches in America are. It's not just us. We've got to break out of that because we're going to be forced to. We must get this. Our church, First Baptist Church of Orange Park, is intent on helping every single person abandon American consumer Christianity for the biblical version. A version of Christianity that does everything to glorify God by surrendering fully to his lordship and joining in his work while living as authentic, joyful believers. For that's our mission. This is played out before us in the narrative of Acts 12, not as a bedtime story or something that would make a really good movie, though it has and it would, but as God's inspired and errant immutable word for us today in this world, existing in this culture, seeking to glorify God now with how we show our love to him, our love for all people, our love for our community that we call home, and our love for his local church, just as he loved the church. This is a, a wake-up call for many of us. This is what the church will face. This is what Christianity, easy Christianity does not offer. Easy Christianity that markets to the felt needs of the individual will never offer full life-changing experience, will never offer transformative Holy Spirit movement of God. It will just offer a surface-level, feel-good, for-the-moment experience. We've experienced it. You remember post-9-11 when churches were full? You remember like three weeks after that? When we got back to normal, you know normal. Normal's what everybody is wanting to get back to again. Oh, Lord, forgive us for ever wanting that normal again. God, you're moving us to something much more incredible than I could ever fathom. May we be prepared for this. And as we look at Acts 12, we see what begins to happen, what the reality is. Here's a truth that easy Christianity hates. 
The church suffers. The church will suffer. We will suffer. Look, look, look again, about that time. About what time? That's what verse one says, about that time. Well, the time was when Paul and Barnabas happened to be in Antioch. Remember Antioch? Antioch was a city where the church, where they were first called Christians, and it was full of Gentile Christians. These Gentile Christians, where the movement of the Holy Spirit was taking place in amazing ways, were being transformed and were transforming their city. Such amazing things were taking place that Paul and Barnabas show up just to get a look to see if it's legit. And when they see that it's legit, they stay there for a while, and they are worshiping these Gentile brothers and sisters, people whom they, that the Jewish Christians, perhaps back in Jerusalem, would not have welcomed into their membership yet. See, there was this rivalry between Jews and Gentiles that existed too. And it was, that wall was still being broken down. But it was at about this time, all these things are taking place. What is, it, what is that time? That time was when the Antioch Christians heard how bad it was in Jerusalem that they passed the plate and collected an offering and gave the money to Paul and Barnabas to take it back to Jerusalem for the brethren. Why? Why would they do such a thing? Why would Antioch Christians, primarily Gentile background, collect money to send to a city they didn't live in to give to a church that was part of the universal but not part of their local body to help Christians in another area? Why? Wouldn't it make more sense for the Antioch Christians to have a meeting and discuss giving the funds? And wouldn't somebody probably stand up and go, you know what, we have needs right here in Antioch. We need to take care of right here before we take care of there. You ever heard that one before? See, not much changes. We got to take care of here before we take care of there. We got to make sure everybody here has food before everybody gets food there. We got to make sure that we're in our best position ever before we start helping others. And that is not what they said, apparently, in their own persecuted city of Antioch, where they were made fun of and called Christians because they dared to try to be like Jesus. They collected an offering of their, not of their abundance, but sacrificially giving meaning that they abandoned whatever it was that they normally would spend their funds on to give that money to someone in need. I don't know what that would have been. Maybe they didn't get five Starbucks coffees that week and they gave that money instead. Maybe they abandoned something that was routine for them and they did, well, we'll just do two meals a day instead of three meals a day and the money we would spend on the third meal we're gonna give. Maybe that was it. I don't know, but I do know this. They gave generously and they gave sacrificially. And they gave to the church in need. Why would they do such a thing? Because sacrificial, generous giving is a hallmark of a disciple of Christ. No church should ever have to say, our funds are a bit low because our giving is not keeping up. Now I get you can be over budgeted, but we should never be under giving. There is no such thing as a right-living, stingy Christian. That is, stinginess is not a spiritual gift. And there is no such thing as a Christian walking with the Lord, right with God, who is hoarding everything for himself, herself, or his or hers descendants. We live today for the glory of God. They gave generously because they were disciples. Disciples don't tip God. Disciples don't give a little. And I get it. I've grown up in church where it's like, yeah, God wants 10%. No, he doesn't. God does not want your 10%. He wants every bit of it. 100%. 
What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean you have to give everything in the offering plate, but it does mean every dollar you spend wherever you spend it better be spent to the glory of God, meaning this. Hey, dude, you can't give 10% to the church and have a subscription to Playboy and think you're doing okay. It's either all or it's not. I believe in the tithe. I'm not apologizing for that, but that doesn't mean I get to do whatever I want to with the other 90%. You see how that works? A disciple is a generous liver, a generous giver, and lives in such a way that when the need is there, he or she provides. At about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John. You know these guys, sons of thunder, the tough guys, right? The ones that argued about who gets to sit by Jesus. Sons of Zebedee, James and John. James is done, dead. Herod has him killed. And when he killed the brother of John with a sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, what does that mean? His approval ratings went sky high after the murder of James. The crowd loved it. His approval ratings, whoo! And when he saw, well, that was good, he said, let's arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, which go ahead and do all this during a religious ceremony when you know they're going to be in the city. Verse 4, when he had seized Peter, he put him in prison, delivered him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. That's a lot for one guy intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. I've seen this story played out before. Let's have an arrest at Passover. Let's bring him out, the criminal who really didn't do anything, at the time of Passover. Let's bring him before the crowd that cheered the murder of James, and let's let them pick. You want this guy or you want Barabbas? This has been done before. This is, there's nothing new under the sun. And Herod is a guy who loves applause. So he's playing to the crowd. And he's got this story playing out you look at this you go well that's terrible Peter's in prison but look at look at verse 5 while in prison earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church you look at this persecution aspect talking about the church being attacked and I know I referenced something happening in, you know in China and other places in the far east and that's a real story but but th this is an ancient story this is 2,000 years ago does this still happen today well November 21st was yesterday and on November 21st, 2002, I don't know how many of you remember the story of Bonnie Witherall. Bonnie Witherall was a missionary nurse in Lebanon. Bonnie and her husband were missionaries through the Christian Missionary Alliance, that denomination. They were members of a Baptist church there in Lebanon, and she was a nurse in a clinic offering free uh, health care to those in the city. But at the same time, they were also evangelical Christians, missionaries, there on purpose, not here making the money they could have made here. They went there making very little and serving in the name of Jesus. And on one day, on November 21st, 2002, a Muslim extremist goes into her clinic and puts three bullets in her head. Why? Because she dared to tell someone about Jesus. When I said it's not a game, it's not a game. And I know that's on the other side of the planet. And I know these other things happen in other countries. I know all of this is everywhere else. But Christians in America need to understand our brothers and sisters in need are going to represent us in need at some point. The church is not celebrated by the culture. It never will be. We can have lines of food and free gifts to everybody in the community in need. But if we declare loudly enough the one way to heaven, that is a very narrow way to heaven, you will find yourself 
being on the outside looking in in many groups and areas that you thought you were a part of because your convictions will lead you to that. The Bible reveals this is the thesis of our experience and it's revealed in Genesis. Genesis 3.15, in the garden it says this, after the serpent tempts Adam and Eve and after that uh, temptation takes place and that fall and the sin enters to the human story, There is the curse that's given, and God says in chapter 3, verse 15, to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That is our thesis. It will not change this side of heaven. We live under that theme. There is a battle going on, and there is an intense rivalry much more serious than a football game, a political win, or whichever chicken sandwich you like. It's that important. The church suffers proudly or gladly or maybe joyfully for the sake of the gospel. But there's also this understanding as the church suffers, the Lord rescues. Verse 6, it says, When Herod was about to bring him out, talking about Peter on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. The sentries before the doors were guarding the prison. If you can picture all of this, this guy is locked up. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up and saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. It's an amazing story. You would have thought, let's see, if you're part of the early church, you're living in Jerusalem, your leader has been captured, he's in a prison, there are four guards here, there's two guards there, there's these chains there. What do we need to get this guy out? We've got to do something. That would be the, the rallying cry of the church. And if we had a, a, like, a like a Jewish Rambo that could kind of jump in there and break in and, and release Peter, that would be ideal. Or maybe it's just like a Maccabean revolt part two. We could have that take place. Or, or, or something, a militia. Let's just go take it there's more of us than them surely that's not what the church did I mean that's what probably I would have thought would have been a good idea but looking back probably not a great idea that's not what the church did the church did fight however they fought intensely they fought with the most powerful weapon in their arsenal if you look back at verse 5 it says so Peter was kept in prison but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church for too long and for too many of us me included prayer has been not considered as powerful as it should be considered it is almost an afterthought that which we do after we've tried everything in our own power it becomes the last resort instead of the preemptive strike but be careful as you look at what the church was doing, you need to understand the church was being obedient to do what it, only could, what it could do, and that was pray. But it was not, and I don't want to, this is very clearly stated here because you don't get these names. This is not an elevation of the people in the church being super Christians because they pray really well. This is not the, okay, now you're in the prayer warrior club. That's not what's happening here. This is not an elevation of an individual. This is not even saying, if you would just do this, pray, then God will have to do that. That's not what that says. Some people live their prayer life like, I do this, I pray this, God must do that. Or I'm going to claim this verse. I'm going to just claim it in Jesus' name. That, 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 That is borrowed verbiage from prosperity gospel hucksters. So let's talk real prayer here, not that stuff. If you elevate the person praying, you will make God an employee of the person who prays, 
meaning that God must do what we tell him to do. So be very careful here. They pray. They pray. But they pray submissively in a position of submission, calling on the only one they could could call upon. Look at it this way. Let's say you live in Orange Park proper. You have a two-story house. You're upstairs, and all of a sudden you discover that your first floor is burning. It's on fire. There's no way down the steps. It's too far for you to jump from the window. Fortunately, you have your cell phone with you. And you live here, and you're like, what are you going to do? Who can you call? Well, you could call your, I don't know, your grandma in Iowa, but that's not going to do a whole lot of good. You could call maybe your neighbor, but why? I mean, I'm just going to help you understand. There's, there's probably only three digits on your phone you need to remember. Nine, one, one. Why would you call them? Because your house is on fire and there's no way to escape and you need ladder truck 19 from Orange Park Fire Department to come to your house, put the truck up there. The firefighters need to come up, break the window, get you out and rescue you. Why? Because they are the ones trained to rescue you. They are the ones with the tools to rescue you. They are the ones with the truck tall enough to get to the window. You call them because they will come and rescue you. So when Peter is in prison, who do you call? You only call the one who has the power to rescue him. This whole gathering of a militia will not work. So they pray. They pray as one. They pray earnestly. And they pray deeply that God would do what only God could do. Because the circumstances in Peter's story are impossible. There is no way, no human way that Peter gets out of that prison. No way. No way that Peter gets rescued. You know what, though? Think about, I'm talking to the Christians in the room and online. That's your story, too. Before you came to know Christ, there is no way you can get to heaven. There is no way you can be rescued. There is no way for you to have hope. And this has been Jesus' message from from his inaugural statement in Luke chapter 4. Look at this, verse 17. Jesus speaks. He's in his old hometown. He's given the scroll of Isaiah to read. He's going to read this before a crowd that does not want to hear what he has to say. But he reads it anyway, and it says, The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll. He found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. Look at this. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captive. What's that mean? Freedom to the prisoners. He has sent me for this, recovery of sight for the blind and liberty or freedom for those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus' mission is to glorify the Father and how he glorifies the Father is in rescuing the image bearers of God who have been attacked by the enemy since the beginning of human story because we live under Genesis 3. This is the rescue this is 911 from the church, fervently, earnestly praying that God would do what only He could do. And then when God does it, they're like, Really? <laughs> I mean, I didn't believe it would happen, but it's really kind of nice that it happened. Even, and Rhoda, I love Rhoda. Uh, one of my professors at seminary years ago said, Rhoda is, is a teenage girl, and she is a great picture of, 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 of adolescence. As she is so excited when Peter's at the front door, she's so excited she leaves him outside and runs back in. And no one believes her because she's just a kid. He's there, he's there. Why didn't you let him in? Oh, I forgot. So then you go back. This is an amazing story. 
The church will suffer. We'll be attacked. But not woe is us. Why? Because we have a rescuer. He's going to see us through. He's already rescued many of us in the room already. You're saved. You're Christians. You're in. You were rescued. And there are many others that need to be. Now, now, now let me just add this little postscript, this, this third point. So, you know, God, the church suffers and the Lord will rescue. But look, the word is spoken here. And I just, you know, I could have saved this for next week, but I just thought I'd go ahead and talk about this briefly. Verse 21 says that on the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. You got to picture Herod. Herod's the guy, right? He's the puppet of the enemy. So he puts on the robe. He's not even really a king. He's a, a Roman puppet king in the area anyway. The Jews really don't like him. And the Romans just put up with him. He puts on his robes. He takes a seat upon the throne. Now, where is he? He is in it. And I know that Eddie and Elwanda and some of the others that are here and maybe some of those, Richard and Karen, that are online watching, and Al and Linda, we've been to this place, the theater in Caesarea, okay? So that first stop on every, every trip to Israel we ever do in Caesarea, there's this theater sitting there. That's where he's seated. There's a throne in the theater. He's made his way down there. And the, the, the people are gathering because the theater is not just a place where they would have a play or a musical or whatever it was. It was also the city seat for some political maneuvering and decisions that had to be made. And as you know, as we read, that's what was happening. So there he is, seated there. He puts on his really nice robe. And, and, and I think it's Josephus who, who says that he wasn't sitting on the stage, but he was sitting on a, on a section like in the, in, the, in the seating area that was sticking out. And so as the people were looking at him the sun was coming up behind him and it was glowing it was reflecting off the gold and the beauty of the robe and it was just this amazing moment right it was a photogenic moment and whatever Herod said was taken well and the people shouted the voice of God the voice of a God and not of man and Herod went that's right and the same angel I think it's the same angel he at least did the same thing an angel who touched Peter to wake him up and said hey I'm going to take you to life. Touched Herod and said, bye. Done. You have received something reserved only for a holy God. You love being worshipped. Only God can be worshipped. And he was struck dead right there. But verse 24 makes it clear. The word of God, that immutable word of God, increased and multiplied. Herod has a terrible obituary. He may have all these great things going on. The last line is, and he, a bunch of worms ate him. Yuck. In public. But the word of God increased and multiplied. The enemy attacks the people of God and hates his church, just in case we need a reminder. The individual who hates God's church has lined up with the enemy. There's no other way around it. All your friends say, hey, I love God. I just can't stand the church. They don't love God. You can't love God and hate the church. It's like, I can't love God and hate Jesus. You can't love the Father and hate the Holy Spirit. The person who hates God's church is lining up with God's enemy, and they don't even know it. God's people will suffer, and they have suffered, and they will continue to suffer, and easy Christianity is being revealed as the lie that it is, in that it is neither easy nor Christianity. Superstitious religious people find themselves living in prison for a lifetime, never knowing that rescue is available. But the answer is still the same. Jesus is the way, the life, 
the truth. He is the rescuer. And everyone who is a Christian in this room has been rescued, and everyone who's not needs to be. And let me just go ahead and, if we can, just think of it this way. If we love God enough, and we do, that means we love you enough. That means we love this community enough. means we love his church enough to tell the truth, even if people don't want to hear it. To tell the truth that our God wishes to rescue you. Now here's what I would ask as we close out this morning. Since the final word is the eternal word, Jesus Christ, and there are some watching and some here in the room that need to say yes to Jesus, you, you may have enough religion, but you don't have Jesus, and it's time to get that settled. Because maybe you bought easy Christianity and it's wore out because you know it doesn't last and you want the real thing. Maybe that's what you desire. If you're online, then I would encourage you to, to email us or contact us here at the church so we can follow up with you. If you're in the room, don't leave until you settle this. But I want to ask you now, especially those who are Christians, who is it that you need to earnestly pray for? I mean, you've prayed for him, but after you know, years of praying for him and you've seen nothing, you've kind of forgotten to pray for him. I don't know who it is. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a child, a grandchild. Maybe it's a sibling or a parent. Maybe it's a coworker, an acquaintance, a fellow student at school, somebody that comes to mind right now that you know that unless something transpires in their heart today uh, or, or soon, that if they were to die, they would not be in heaven because they have no relationship with Jesus Christ. They either have abandoned the church, never knew the church, abandoned Christ, never knew him. Maybe they've even been a church member, but they've turned their back on it and walked away, and it's clear that they never truly have had a transforming heart experience. And it hurts you. Well, look here. They need rescuing. Guess what? We don't need to call the fire department for that. We don't need to call someone else to talk to them. Could you just talk to them? Maybe you can help them. No, no, that's, that, that, that's like maybe later. That's not even our first, first call. We, we don't need to drag them somewhere or get them into counseling or go here. Or that. What, what do we need? We need to do what the church did in Acts when Peter is in prison and there's no way, no earthly way he's getting out of that prison. He needs a rescuer. He needed God to rescue him. Your friend, your loved one, your casual Christian, quote-unquote, connection, who maybe not be here today because something else came up, too many, too many other things, or I just, I didn't feel like it. Maybe they don't even know this Lord, Jesus we speak of. And maybe, maybe, maybe we're excusing their lostness to appease our feeling of guilt for not talking to them. Now listen, I can't make anybody a Christian. If I could, all you have to do is get somebody to listen to me preach and they become Christians. That doesn't work that way. The Holy Spirit transforms people. Only he does. But we need to, to get back to this point. Do we love our lost family and friends enough to talk to God about them? Well, we're, that's a flip on how we think about it often. We all want to talk to them about God. Maybe we need to start with talking to God about them and then follow his lead and talk to them about God. Here's what, how I want to end the service. 
I don't want to end it with a token prayer. I want to end it with some earnest prayer. I want to ask you if you would. Think of that individual. Hey, don't think of that person's per- person or this person's individual or that. You got enough people in your own story to think about. Think of yours. The one that they seem so close, they just haven't made the step. Or the one who's walked away. Or the one you just don't know about. But there's no fruit. There's no evidence. Why don't we do this as we close today? Why don't we earnestly pray to the only one who can rescue them? And believe he will. Would you pray with me? Father, as individuals in this room have people come to mind, while children come to mind, grandchildren, son-in-laws, daughter-in-laws, brothers, sisters. For some, it may be their father or their mother. In 2020, we've been faced with the very clear reality that none of us are promised tomorrow. And because of that, we take this moment to pause so that we're not rushing to the next whatever it is. You have brought this individual to our mind, whether it's a coworker, neighbor, family member, or acquaintance, for some reason. And it must be because you love them. Because we love you and we seek to love all people, you've brought them to mind because maybe we need to love them like you love them. So today we want to talk to you about them. We're calling 911, God, and we're pleading with you to rescue them. And Father, we're going to confess that sometimes we tell you what you need to do in order to rescue them. We have a plan. And God, we ask you to work our plan. Today we confess that that is sin. We do not have a plan, but we do have a command to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbors, and that's everyone, as we love ourselves. So Father, in this strange pandemic, fearful year that is creating superstitious religious people and causing many to cry out for something. We ask that you use this year for your glory and that you will rescue these people. Rescue those that have come to mind and those that we have yet to think of but will. Father, when someone knocks at the door, may we not be surprised that you've answered the prayer. We are thankful for our rescue. Oh God, do it again. We pray in Jesus' name.